Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. It's really important in these days when there's so much deconstructionism taking place of Christianity. Uh, Christians and pa- even pastors in, in the U.S. I was reading an article somebody sent me about pastors. They called them post-evangelicals and they're deconstructing their faith. It's much more difficult to deconstruct your faith if you know what the story is. But if you are particularly Old Testament illiterate, it's very easy just to pick and choose doctrines and go here and there and everywhere because you don't see that there's a cohesive whole. Okay? So that's what we're going to be doing in this series, but um, uh, we're going to start in the beginning. How's that? We're going to start the story in the beginning, in uh, Genesis 1-1. In fact, we're not going to get past Genesis 1-1 today, all right? So let's bow for a word for our Father. We just thank you for your word, and uh, thank you that your spirit works through your word and uh, into our hearts, and we choose today to engage our minds, because you told us that we are not only to renew our hearts, but our minds. Renew your minds, Paul said. And you told us that we are to worship you in spirit and in truth. In fact, we can't properly worship in spirit if we don't know you in truth. And so we just pray that you'd help us to continue to have that balance where we uh, understand your word. Give us understanding through your spirit and uh, through each other as we we, uh, discover the scriptures uh, together. And I pray that this this period of time that... uh, this series would be a special time in which we grow close. I pray that it would be a memorable time for us, that we would never forget it, but that we would also draw closer to you because of it. In Jesus' name, and everybody agreed by saying? All right, it's called The Grand Story. And have you ever wondered what the Bible was all about, what the unifying theme was, uh, what it's trying to say? The Bible is unique because, it is, because it's history written from God's point of view. Now, political history is written from our point of view, but the scriptures are written from God's point of view. That's why he inspired it. And God has a plan for the world, and he's, uh, he's had it all along. You see, the Bible is not an ancient book with random stories and rules, and I want you to remember that. It's not random. It isn't just stories here and there, rules here and there. It has a cohesive whole. It is, and it's progressing from somewhere, and it's going going to somewhere. Uh, It's it's got a grand storyline. It has a start and a finish. It's going somewhere. I want to share that story with you in this series, and Genesis is where we'll begin. uh, Genesis, of course, is a book of beginnings, of origins, uh, or uh, of for the universe, planet Earth, plants, animals, humans, marriage, civilization, evil, sin, death, uh, judgment, and so on and so on. It's the beginning of firsts. But it is clear that God himself does not begin here. Does not begin there. Uh, God was already there when the universe came to be. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, what? God. (laughs) You could stop right there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Is there really a God who created everything? Atheists say no. Bertrand Russell, for example, said, the universe is just there and that's all. You know what he's saying by that? Matter is eternal. We say, the Christian faith says, God is eternal. Atheists say, matter is eternal. See the difference? And all polytheistic faiths say that matter is eternal. But we're going to look at that question today and uh, from the biblical point of view. So, Scripture says God is eternal. He created matter and the universe. These are philosophical questions that we're asking. Theological questions, too. Which is correct. Is matter eternal or is God eternal? And the two go in opposite directions. That's what we've got to determine. God has left us with quite a bit of evidence that He created matter and the world. That means matter is not eternal. And uh, we'll look at three clues or evidences for God uh, today. Now, there'll be more in the series. We'll probably look at another one. I'm thinking about one for next week. But we'll just have time for, for three, and even those we can't, completely, we can't expand as much as we would like to. But we'll do a little bit, all right? So let's begin with the first one. Evidence from cause and effect points to God. Logic and reasoning and experience. Sometimes Christians are charged with just having blind faith in God and the idea that he, you know, and this idea that he created the universe. That's just blind faith. That's a leap in the dark, people say. But is that really true? Well, first of all, uh, just because you can't perceive something with your senses doesn't mean it's true. Is that correct? Is that correct reasoning? Yes. Let's try that. We can't hear sounds that dogs can hear. But does that mean that those sounds aren't real? No. Okay, let's try another one. Our eyes can't see distant galaxies. Does that mean those galaxies don't exist? No. You have to, you have to preach back to me. So I'm, we're, we're in an audience together. We're, both, we're all preaching together and we're all, uh, all listening together, right? So, uh, our eyes can't see it, but we know they're there. Telescopes help us with it. I can't smell, but does that mean there wasn't a skunk on the road? Huh? Um, uh, we can't touch our thoughts and our feelings, but does that mean that love doesn't exist? And that you didn't hurt my feelings? And I didn't hurt yours? We'd say those are real. Isn't that true? So just because you can't hear and you can't see and you can't smell, you can't touch, you can't taste something doesn't mean it isn't real. So that's the first argument. Second one is this. The law of cause and effect states that for every effect, there is an adequate corresponding cause. Cause and effect. We talk about that all the time, right? Cause and effect. Is that true? Now, let, let me, my mother is here somewhere. I spotted her just a moment ago. Where is she? Oh, there she is. She's busy taking notes because she's going to check me on what I'm saying and then she's going to quiz me later and, uh, and say, you weren't right about this. But many years ago, when we visited Manitoba from Ontario, I would sneak to my parents' freezer to look for butter tarts. 
And then I'd eat a couple of frozen ones right there before anyone saw me. Like the freezer open, you know, it was down in the basement. One trip back, when I opened up the freezer, there was a note in there and it said, simply, thou shalt not steal. <laughs> this, is a, this is a true story. I turned over the note and wrote out Ephesians 4.28, but I changed the punctuation. That's all I changed. This is what I, it came out as. Let him that stole steal. No more let him labor working with his hands. <laughs> See, all you do is you just, move the, you just move it from behind more. Steal no more. Let him labor, right? I just moved the punctuation. And uh, I said, this is found in scripture. <laughs> Though my mom didn't see me there, she looked at the evidence to determine which conclusion best fit the facts and the effects. Here was her rationale. Ray loves tarts. Ray was in the basement where the freezer is. Two tarts are missing. My tarts never disappear when Ray is in Ontario. Therefore, Ray stole the tarts. Cause and effect. True? We live by it. Now, even if my mother had been an agnostic or atheist, she would have still looked at the evidence the same way and come to the same conclusion. She didn't look at it because she was a Christian. She did it because we all live like that. Whether we're Christians, agnostics, or atheists, we all believe in the law of cause and effect. Everyone lives like that. If someone is on a farm, sees an egg lying on the ground, they'll rightly assume a hen was there, even if they didn't see the hen. Now, many people wouldn't know that it's a hen that lays eggs because they get them in a grocery store, right? <laughs> they think they come from, <laughs> you know, from some packaging company or something. But it is actually, just so you know, young people, it is hens that do that. <laughs> they cause... They cause eggs. <clears throat> they know it was caused by hand. Things don't just pop into being, you know. Like, I'm not worried that an egg is going to suddenly just pop in front of me right now while I preach. It's not. Uh, it, I, I know it won't. And you don't think it will either, do you? Or do you? Have you changed that much in four years? Neither does your watch, your car, your house, your furniture pop into existence. And when you see these, you know that someone made them and put them there. Is that true? We all believe that. And if something can come from being, into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? That's why we don't believe it. This law doesn't just work in Steinbeck or Mitchell, by the way. I've seen it at work in other provinces here in Canada. It's a lot of cause and effect. Travel to Mexico, it works there too. Um, <laughs> works in Uganda. Works in Europe. Same, same thing. It's amazing. Cause and effect. In fact, this law of cause and effect has been discussed for millennia. Greek philosophers like Aristotle and more recent ones like Immanuel Kant, they've been discussing this law for many, many centuries. Even the, and by the way, nobody's disproven it. 
So far, nobody has disproven it. Even the Bible talks about it. Did you know the Bible talks about cause and effect? It does. Take a look at it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4. For every house is built by someone. Ha-ha! That's cause and effect. Is it true? And then it goes on to say, God is the builder of everything. In other words, it's just using a different word, but it's saying the same thing. It's saying, God is the first cause of everything. Before everything, there's a God. Since this is a valid law that humanity consistently lives by, why would you suddenly suspend or suppress that kind of clear logic when it comes to creation and God? Sounds like a double standard to me. Everything gets, has a cause. cause. Every effect has a cause. Everything that you see has a cause. Uh, except the universe. Uh, by what measure did you come up with that idea? Everything that we observe indicates that there is a cause. Which is why God's word says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the self-evident truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. He's not talking about the written word of God. He's saying, look at the universe, and you can tell. Look at the way the laws work, and you can tell that I am here. You see what I'm saying? Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been what? Say it one more time. Have been what? That's what he's talking about. Clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. From what? From what has, you can see it, he says, clearly, God says that. You can clearly see from what has been made. That's logic. And God's word backs it up. In this way, God is self-evident, which is what the Bible said. God is saying that you can deduce that. Okay, let's look at it from another one. Another clue or evidence from, from God. Let's uh, take a look at what science says, and it, we'll find out science also points to God. The second law of thermodynamics, uh, or entropy, uh, sometimes they call it law of entropy, but I'll, I'll explain it, so don't, don't worry about it. The first established law of thermodynamics was formulated, published by Sadi Carnot in 1824. I have no idea if I pronounced that right or not. In time, it became the second of the four laws of thermodynamics. It is also called the law of entropy. It has to do with converting heat energy to mechanical work, like in a car engine. You got gas and you, you, you got combustion, that gets converted and you got mechanical drives. Is that true? Jet engines work like it, plane engines like it, um, everything. But that is also true in creation. And uh, that's, that's what happens, that, that sort of thing. So though the total amount of energy remains unchanged in the universe, like that's the first law of thermodynamics, 
the amount that can be used diminishes every time it's being used, which is millions and millions of times every second, okay? So the amount of available energy for that, it, it, it gets used. So that means the, the universe is running out of, I didn't say energy, but usable energy. It's running out of usable energy. Here's an example, the sun. Um, the sun radiates light and heat. That's solar energy, making life on Earth possible. Plants need sunlight to grow. Animals and humans need plants for food and oxygen and the oxygen they produce. True? We learned that in school. Without the sun, the Earth would, would freeze and there would be no winds, no clouds uh, to transport water uh, to our fields and plants. So the sun is really important. The sun powers uh, itself by fusing or combining extremely hot hydrogen atom, atoms inside its core. That creates helium and a lot of energy. Okay? That's, uh, and for those of you that didn't like all that other stuff, just remember, it creates a lot of energy, the sun does, by fusion, like a nuclear fusion. And it's that energy that drives all those processes making life possible, just like a car engine. But just as a music box will wind itself out, the hydrogen in the sun's core will run dry. Uh, those of you that are under 45, feel bad for you. The sun's running out. And uh, live your life well. No, uh, they figure, it's they figure uh, there's enough in the tank for another 5 billion years. I, I don't know if they, what, what kind of you know, how they could tell in the tank, but they figured it out, what's left there. That means if the universe had been here, but not, now listen, now you gotta listen. That means if it's running out, if the universe um, had been here forever, like they say, what does that mean? Let's say it had, it's, it's running out, right? Eventually, five billion years, uh, it, it's going to be out. And uh, you and I <laughs> won't be able to survive here. That means if, if, the, if the universe had been here forever, it would have long run out of fuel. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? Do you see the problem with that? The universe, matter, can't be eternal. And science proves it. That's the point. Now, the Bible says that, but science proves that. Uh, it's not just that the sun is wearing out. Scientists tell us that everything is deteriorating and slowly becoming more disorderly. And we know that from our own observation experiences. Cars, does your car wear out? Yep, by the same processes, by the way. H houses wear out. People, animals, everything wears out. And that's exactly what the psalmist said 3,000 years ago, before the scientists figured it out. The psalmist said, In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will what? Perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them, and they will be discarded. It's wearing down, it's wearing out. And science tells us that. But that means 
You know, like it's, it's when you see an old rust bucket on, uh, on the parking lot, and I didn't see any. But if you see an old rust bucket uh, on the parking lot, you know there was a, a, a better day before, right? There was a day when that thing was new and was star- when it started, right? Same thing with people, eh? <laughs> when you see an old rust bucket, like me, you know there was a day. My, just ask my mom. Just look at the, at the photos. She has it. Don't you, mom? Yeah. When it didn't look like that. Everything's wearing out. All right. <clears throat> That means the material universe, what we see, matter, had to have a beginning. And scientists agree with that, by the way. It's not just me saying that. It's logic. It's logical. But even scientists will tell you that. They don't like it, however. Okay, here's a second one from science. <clears throat> um, and we call it We call it the uh, general theory of relativity, the Big Bang. So when physicist Albert Einstein developed the general theory of relativity in 1915, his equations pointed away from a static universe. They thought the universe was just static, like, like this. You notice this pulpit never grows or changes its shape. It's, It's the same all the time. Is that true? Yeah, you can count on it. Next week, it'll be the same. It never changes. It's static. That's what we mean by that. But when he did his calculations, he he realized, oh my goodness, the calculations, my equations, they are suggesting that the universe isn't like this, that it's actually expanding. Uh, That troubled him uh, a little bit. And... uh, So then, in the 1920s, a man by the name of Alexander Friedman, he was a Russian mathematician, and George, uh, George, I need help on on this French here, um, who was a Belgian uh, astronomer, developed models on Einstein's theory, predicting that the universe was expanding, totally opposite of what they thought. That's not what they had thought. The astronomer, Fred Hoyle, uh, derisively called it the the Big Bang because of the implications. Now, Edward Hubble, in 1929, confirmed this when he discovered that light coming from distant galaxies appeared redder, indicating that they were moving outward, literally flying apart at tremendous velocities. The universe, I'm talking about. Not static but expanding tremendously fast. And he could see it through his Hubble telescope. We're all familiar with the Hubble telescope. Of course, that meant that if you went backward in time, the universe would go back to what? A single point in time. If it's expanding, then if you go back, it's retracting. It's like, you know, when you watch a movie film and then you put it in reverse and watch it all the way back to the beginning. But, uh, and finally, right? You've seen that? If you want me to demonstrate that again, I'll do it later. (laughs) If you support church renewal financially. (laughs) That's what that meant. 
It meant the universe sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. Now, agnostic and atheist scientists now believe this. And Fred Hoyle, who I had just mentioned, derisively called it the Big Bang, and that stuck. But he didn't like it. That meant the universe, in a flash, came into being. And virtually all scientists now believe that. Uh, because <laughs> you can't prove otherwise. In fact, Einstein hated what he was coming. He spent a couple of years trying to disprove his own equations. And finally, Hubble convinced him to come and visit with him at his telescope. And they looked together. And after spending quite some time with him, with his telescope, he came to the same conclusion, said, indeed, my equations were right, pointing to the right thing. The universe is expanding. And uh, of course, um, not everyone is fond of a finite universe because it implies or necessitates a what? Well, uh, what did you say? Yes, exactly. Thank you so much. <laughs> it implies that there's a creator because either then, like if matter hasn't been eternal and that it was created or, or that it, it came into being at a certain point, there's only two logical options that you're going to have. What are they? It popped into being like that egg, or, which didn't pop into being, or somebody made it and put it there. Those are the only two options that you have. Is that true? And so the scientists didn't like it. So they, you say, what, are they, what did they do about it? Well, Einstein admitted the idea of an expanding universe, and I quote, irritates me. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <clears throat> the British astronomer Arthur Eddington called it repugnant. And the American astronomer and agnostic Robert Jastrow, he's renowned, and he, he said it was distasteful to the scientific mind. <laughs> in an interview in 2005, Jastrow said that Albert Einstein traveled to spend time with Hubble, and he didn't like that idea because it suggested a beginning and a creation, and a creation suggested a creator. Oh my, we got ourselves in a pickle here. That's a problem, isn't it? So uh, when asked about the implications of this, Jastro said, as to what created the beginning and what came before the beginning, these are questions, get this, science can't answer. Of course not, because they weren't there. They can't prove it. Those are philosophical questions, which is why uh, science isn't the only way we know things. History tells us things. Um, uh, you know, you have, uh, uh, we have uh, knowing, the ability to, for introspection. Science isn't the only way that we know things. When you go in a court of law, you have witnesses. That's how you know. And this idea that science is the only way you can know something is patently false and illogical. 
and no human being lives by that. So it's not true. So science can't answer that. The interviewer then asked Jastrow about a famous statement he made in his book called God and the Astronomers. Here's the quote. I think you'll like it. <laughs> yeah, this is what it says. Uh, this is Jastrow speaking, and he's an agnostic. But this is what he said. He said, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, <clears throat> the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> Meaning, the Bible said so all along. <laughs> That's what he's saying in, in a much more elegant way. Eloquent way, I should say. So many claim that there is a conflict between science and religion, but as you can see, there's no conflict between science and belief in God. There's no, there's no conflict between science and belief in God at all. The conflict really exists between science and naturalism. And naturalism is this belief that everything can be explained by the forces of nature. And that matter has always existed, and, and so it's just determinism. It just, you just, the laws, they just make everything happen. And now we discovered, science is telling us, no, actually that didn't happen, and the Bible tells us the exact same thing. See what we're saying? Since science has uh, clearly proven that the universe had a starting point, it has only two choices left. Either the universe magically popped into being, or somebody put it there, created it. Which is more logical or rational? <laughs> he created it. Somebody created it. It seems to me that it is those who do not believe that someone created the universe are the ones acting in blind faith, since they're acting against the evidence. It's not the Christian who's acting against the evidence. It's the non-believer who's acting against the evidence when they say that. All right, evidence from consciousness. Many, uh, that's the third one, that's the only one of the evidences we're going to be able to look at today, but many scientists and philosophers now are concluding that the laws of physics and chemistry, or science in, in other words, cannot explain the experience of consciousness or the mind in human beings. And many scientists now believe what I'm going to tell you. They're convinced that there is more than just the physical brain at work. There is also the non-material reality of the mind, called the soul or the mind. And they cite the evidence of the soul or mind as evidence for a creator. First, <clears throat> the father of modern neurosurgery, his name is Wilder Penfield, is one of them. He would electrically, think about this, he would electrically stimulate the brains of epileptic patients and found that he could cause them to move their arms or legs, he could cause them to turn their head or their eyes, he could cause them to talk and to swallow. Just by electrical impulses that he placed at different parts of the, of the, of the brain. And, uh, 
Invariably, however, the patient would say, I didn't do that, you did. Uh-oh, do you see what's going on? Did you just see what, I, uh, what happened here? So he, he sends these electrical pulses to the brain and it moves their hands and their feet and their eyes and things like this. And while that's happening, they are saying, I didn't do that, you did it. Meaning that the brain and the mind are distinct. Does that make sense, what I just said? Yeah, okay. Smart group here. Um, they're separate. They're not the same. That's, that's a fascinating thought. And according to Penfield, the patients thought of themselves as having an existence separate from their bodies. No matter how much Penfield probed the cerebral cortex, he said there is no place where electrical stimulation will cause a patient to believe or decide. He could get them to do those physical things, but he could not get them to think certain thoughts or believe certain things. No matter how much he probed. Indicating to him that there's a difference between the brain and the mind. It's not the same. Not the same thing. That's because those functions originate in the conscious self, not the brain. He explained that the patient had not only a physical brain that was stimulated to action, but also a non-physical reality that interacted with the brain. <laughs> you say, oh, well, how does that work? Think about it like this. A TV. You, know, you got your TV hanging on your wall, and it gets some power from the, you know, from the wall and there's a little cord going, but somehow you're getting pictures and you're getting sound and f entire football games and, and everything through waves that you can't see. And the television is just a manifestation. It's just a stage to project that on. Do you see what I'm saying? The brain is like that television. As a, you know, it's not a perfect analogy, but it is a little like that, but does that help understand? But there is a mind that is using that brain and telling that brain what to do. We're not just a composition of chemicals that are firing indeterminately and we have no, we have no control over this thing. That's what, the, that's what science found out. Now, Sam Parnia and Peter Fenwick, one of them is a physician, the other one's a neuropsychiatrist, in 2001, they made a presentation to scientists at the California Institute of Technology about a year-long study that they conducted uh, and the evidence that consciousness continues after a person's brain has stopped functioning and they are clinically dead. Okay? Everybody with me? Study about people who are clinically dead, but they're trying to find out if the mind is still going. And they performed this study on 63 heart attack victims who were declared clinically dead but later revived and interviewed, and 10% of them reported well-structured, lucid thought processes with memory formation, reasoning, during the time their brains weren't functioning. 
Ha! And the effects of oxygen, starvation, and drugs were ruled out as factors. They speculated that the brain might serve as a mechanism to, to, pro, uh, you know, to manifest or project, that the mind could project onto, like the TV, like I explained. So, if there's a brain injury, it doesn't mean the mind stopped. It just means the TV apparatus is damaged. That's it. Thus, while the brain is physical, the mind isn't. Science, which deals with physicality, proves to be insufficient to either explain or work with the mind. Now, this is important. Think about this now. If materialists are right, those who just believe we're just a sum of atoms and neurons and protons and uh, neutrons and protons and, and chemical reactions and everything and laws and stuff like that, then we have no free will. Then there is no such a thing as free will because it is all predetermined by laws that exist. Just like the earth doesn't have a will of its own. It, it has to do that. There's this gravitational thing and it makes it go in circles and it has to rotate and the moon has this effect on it so it tilts 23.5 degrees and you know, da 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 And it has no choice. It can't do anything else. Do you see what I'm saying? But the fact that we're mind, that we have a mind, which scripture said all along, means that we have free will and can be held accountable for our actions. You see what I'm saying? And if you didn't, I don't know what to do. <laughs> the truth is that we are souls and we have bodies. And science agrees with it. The Bible already told us that long before the scientists discovered that it was true, but I'm glad that they discovered it, aren't you? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not mocking anything here. I'm very glad that they've, they've done that. But Matthew 10, 28 says, uh, as an example, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Scripture said all along that we're body and soul. And many ancients have believed this for millennia, this truth. But now science agrees with, uh, agrees with that. Okay, what God must be like, I want to show you that without the Bible, you can deduce, like Romans said, a lot about who God is. You don't have to just have revelation here to do that. You can actually deduce it. Now, there are some things you can't. You're not going to reason yourself to the Trinity, okay? I'm not saying we don't need revelation. Yes, we need revelation. And um, um, so what... What is God like? From all this, there is much we can deduce about God without the Bible. Number one, he must be a God of tremendous power. He must be. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, think about it, logically. Every tiny atom is packed with potential power. Man employs enormous power to hurl a 2,000 ton space shuttle out of Earth's gravitational pull in, in, into space. That's amazing, isn't it? Now, I know they're not sending the space shuttle anymore, but that was a real heavy one. 
And uh, I still watch when they send people up into space. I don't know about you, but I, I'm so fascinated by that. And um, 2,000 tons, and they, they have figured out a way to do that. Is that phenomenal? Wow. By comparison, however, can we begin to imagine the sort of power needed to get the Earth itself into orbit? Or pack the sun with the energy that fills our solar system? <laughs> that makes that space shuttle look pretty, pretty tiny stuff, wouldn't you say? That looks like sandbox activity to me. In comparison. The one who created that kind of power cannot be less powerful than what he created. That's logic. Is that true? No wonder scripture refers to him as the what? Almighty. Of course it refers to him as the Almighty. Because that is incredible what he can do. And he keeps that going. Unbelievable. Well, so we know he must be, he can't be less than, than what he created, so he must be awfully, awfully powerful since he created it. He must be a God, number two, of tremendous intelligence. I mean, man prides himself on his intelligence because he can understand some of the universe in which he now lives. Doesn't understand a lot about it, as I've been reading about it. Though, in fact, the, the more he finds out, the less he's, mankind seems to know. Which is why you got these fine-tuned disciplines just popping up all over, you know, and they just delve into another area, and they, they get to know more, and they, oh my goodness, and they delve into another one, and oh my goodness, there's even more, and they delve into that one. Uh, they know quite a bit, but they're finding out they don't know very much. I was talking to one doctor one day, some years back, and he said, we only scratch the surface. We only scratch the surface. That's it. That's right. How much more intelligent must be the one who made it all? Think about water. Just, I mean, we're not going to go into deep, but just, just think how simple. What an amazing complexity is involved in this apparently simple substance which keeps our planet clean and fertile and cool. The tides move endlessly, washing our shores and bays and inlets. Millions of gallons of water are caught up into the air every day and then dropped back onto the land, often from an altitude of several miles and yet so gently that it sustains life without harming the plants and animals or human beings. That's phenomenal! <laughs> That's pretty complex. When you say, whoa, can you do that? I can't. God must not only be almighty, but he must be incredibly intelligent. He can't be less intelligent than we are. He must be God alone, meaning there aren't more of him. Can we deduce that? Yes, we can. There can be no other creative mind in the universe. In fact, it is just that. Uh, what did I say? Universe. That's what that means. One verse. There is only one. Do you know why they call it a universe? 
Because no matter where you travel in space, the same laws seem to apply. There may be additional ones they discover, but it's the same laws. Gravitation, uh, gravitational forces, velocity, all those kinds of things. It's not like there's competing laws. You know, like there's many, that's why, that's why um, polytheism, like many gods, is false. It's a false philosophy. Because their stories, which is why we call them myths, um, their stories are about many gods who are constantly fighting over each other. They're quarreling over, with each other and um, using the forces of nature and they're quarreling and fighting each other uh, like that, but that's not how it works. The inescapable conclusion is that there is one God, only one. Therefore, uh, there cannot be many gods with competing agendas and laws quarreling over uh, or among themselves. It's a universe. That's what science has found. He, he must be personal. This is completely logical. Think about it. The noblest of creatures are humans. Uh, with personality, memory, consciousness, as we saw, self-awareness, ability to think, to reason, to decide, to speak, to love, all of which distinguishes us from animals. <laughs> A friend's got her dog. He doesn't hold a candle. He's seriously one brick short of a load. <laughs> He's cute, but he just, seriously. He's missing a few things. <laughs> it's great to be cute, but it's great to have a little more than that too, right? Can God be less than I am, one of his tiny mortal creatures? No. He may be, well, indeed he is, much more than I am, but he cannot be less than he created me. Follows then that God too must think and feel and decide and speak and relate to other persons. True. We haven't even cracked the Bible. It's self-evident. That's what, Paul, that's what God was saying through Paul. You can see it from the things that are made. Oh, let's try one more. He must be spirit. Uh, there, there would have been another one I'd like to do, but I think uh, we'll, we'll save it for next week because <clears throat> we'll be talking about humans a little bit. But he must be spirit. Today we learned that there is a non-material side to us, right? The soul, the mind, that, so, that sort of thing. We're spirit dwelling in a body, but even when we're not in our bodies, we exist. We all believe that. Knowing that, even many non-believers believe that. They'll say things like, uh, you know, uh, I see him smiling down on us today. They believe in spirit. It's intuitive. But, but this is fascinating. Knowing that helps me understand how God can be spirit then too. 
Have you ever thought of it? Have you ever gone, oh man, this really troubles me. God's spirit. I can't, I can't grasp that. But wait a minute, when you realize that you are too, it makes so much sense, doesn't it? It does. It helps me to understand who God is. And I go, oh, I'm comfortable with that. Um, because we all are spirit and body. So just because we can't see him with our five senses doesn't mean he isn't there. So without resorting to the Bible, we've learned a great deal. That there must be a God, that he is powerful, intelligent, he's one, he's personal, and so on. And he's spirit. So why didn't God reveal himself fully? Well, first of all, he already revealed himself partially. (laughs) That he did. So that humans could see him, he put on, on a physical body like us. He is spirit, but he did put on a body. That's what scripture tells us. Matthew says that the people were amazed at his wisdom and miraculous powers. However, they were perplexed. Matthew 13 says, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. They didn't believe. Why? His deity was partially veiled. So they were offended. I mean, on the one hand, unusual wisdom, unusual miracles. This is, this is more than just average. On the other hand, don't we know where he came from? So he's partially veiled. He veiled himself. He revealed himself, but only partially. They didn't believe because of that. And now, as we saw earlier, many scientists still don't, won't believe, even though uh, the only options or for a, you know, for a Big Bang is it popped into being or someone put it there. Not everyone is honestly seeking for the truth, even when you find evidence. Even then, they'll fight the truth. They'll fight the evidence and go opposite of what, what the evidence is pointing to. Listen to me. Young person, you might be here today. You say, I'm looking for truth. Are you? Are you an honest seeker of truth? Or are you playing games? Just playing mental games and trying to see how you can get around what the evidence is pointing to. See, not everybody wants to know the truth. They didn't in Jesus' day. They don't in today's day. And I demonstrated it earlier. He put evidence out there to make it obvious that he exists, like some of what we saw today. But then he waits to see who's serious, who's going to seek after him. If God simply showed up, everyone would be forced to believe in him, even many hard-hearted people who would do so grudgingly. And guess what? Heaven isn't going to be populated by grudging people. (laughs) there's not going to be any more of that. No skeptics there. No agnostics there. None of that. No mockers. No half-heartedness. All will be thrilled to be there. 
There'll be nuns standing there and going, well, I'm here because it beats the alternative. Hell. So I'll choose this. There'll be none of that. And so God puts enough evidence for those that are, are looking for the truth to find them. And on the other hand, he veils himself just enough so that they can stumble over him if their hearts are hard and callous and begrudging and they don't want to submit to him. You know, two doctors were witness to the one day. This is actually a true, true event. It was our doctors <laughs> many years ago. They were witness to about Jesus Christ. And, and you know what I appreciate about it? The honesty. In the end, they said no. And you know what their reason was? If I receive him, then I have to bow down to him and obey him. And that is the issue. Many don't want to bow and submit to God. That's the problem. We want to be our own gods. Isn't that true? That's the issue. It's not that there isn't evidence. The issue, it's an issue of the heart, not the issue of evidence, as we're seeing. And God won't coerce people to love him because love isn't love if it's coerced. And we'll talk more about that in the next week or two or something like that. Lastly, he will reveal himself fully. He's revealed himself partially, but he will reveal himself fully. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels completely unveiled at that point. And then it says... When that happens, he's going to judge the living and the dead. They will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then it says, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Is God real? <laughs> Amen. Many of you met him this morning, right? <laughs> exactly. But now you know what the scripture is saying is not folklore. It's not legend. It's not a tale. It's not mythology. It's not a myth. Amen. It's real. Amen. It's true. And I've staked my life on it. And so have you, right? Father, thank you for this time in your word. This causes us, as we look at it, to realize just, wow, who you really are. It causes us to fall down and worship you. Wow, what a God. And we submit and commit ourselves even more fully to you this morning. And perhaps, with your eyes closed, maybe there's somebody here today. You've been wrestling whether there's a real God, whether he has revealed himself. He sure did. He put on the he put on a human form, his name was Jesus. And he came for a short while and he said he's coming back. He's giving us time to repent now and own him as Lord. We can make that choice. We can be with him or we don't have to be with him. But once he comes the second time, there isn't another chance. This is the chance. How much more chance do you need? And he invites you right now he left a personal note. He left a lot of evidence that it's him. 
If you would like to be his, become his child, you'd like to submit to him, you'd like to have your sins forgiven, pray this prayer with me right now. Father, I recognize now the most reasonable thing in the world to believe is that you exist. And I believe it now with all my heart. No matter what the culture tells me, no matter what they say in the schools, I know that you exist. Everything points that way. And I believe today that you have already partially revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. And I've been living rebelliously against you and your laws. And I submit myself to you. And I ask you to forgive me. And I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's been great to be with you this morning. God bless you.